That was some weeping and gnashing of teeth right there. Thank you, Katie, for that uh, beautiful evocation of the Dies Irae. Some of you know that chant, Dies Irae, Dies Ila. It's not a cheerful tune, but we're going we're gonna to talk about it. But before we get to the Dies Irae, I want to tell you about my friend Barry. Some of you knew Barry. He knew these streets, these streets of Portland, because Barry had claimed Portland's streets as his home. And he traveled them by foot, by bicycle, all of his possessions collected in a couple white plastic bags that he carried on his handlebars. You may have recognized his picture in the email that came out a couple weeks ago about the death of Barry Sutton. Maybe you saw Tom, Tom, Tom Hallman's profile of Barry in this weekend's Oregonian. Barry's funeral was on Thursday over at the Unitarian Church. Some of you were there. And lots more of you than realize it knew him because Barry was a fixture in this town, right? He was a fixture for over 50 years. He was one of us. We found Barry's name tag, filed neatly where he had left it in the back of the cathedral the last time he was here. He was a member of this congregation, and not just of this congregation. Barry was a son of this parish. We didn't know this until after he had died, but Barry was baptized at the font of Trinity Episcopal Church in 1950, 73 years ago. He grew up in our Sunday school, but when his, first his mother and then his father died before he graduated high school, Barry was made a ward of the state. And after untreated, largely undiagnosed mental health issues took him out of the privileged traditional Irvington home in which he had been raised, Barry claimed Portland's streets as his home, despite many attempts by different individuals and faith communities over the years to get him into permanent housing. It was always the streets where Barry found his home and his community. He lived on our streets for 50 years, 50 years, living outside. He died in September. He was surrounded by family and friends at Hopewell House, an amazing hospice care facility in southwest Portland. Barry knew this town. He knew Portland's streets intimately and firsthand. Barry knew Portland's history. More to the point, today of all days, Barry knew our history. He knew the history of Trinity Cathedral. Before that, Trinity Church, the place where he was baptized, that well-heeled and well-meaning, if sometimes slightly exclusive enclave on the corner of 19th and Everett, he knew us because he grew up here, and he kept coming back here through the years. He came to the food pantry. He was a regular guest at our food pantry. He came to choral events. Barry was a trained musician. He was a clarinetist. He loved classical music. He showed up for about every single guest speaker Trinity hosted in the 80s, in the 90s, well into the first couple decades of this century. Marcus and Marianne Borg, Trinity's theological power couple, knew him well because Barry was always the first guy at the mic when the question sessions opened up. His question was usually a little rambly. It was a little odd and usually the most astute question that anybody would ask that day. Barry would grab Marcus as soon as Marcus stepped down from the podium, and he and Marcus could talk, 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 could talk politics for hours. Barry was like an unofficial advisor to Commissioner Nick Fish before Nick's untimely death. Once Noam Chomsky, the MIT professor and philosopher, got Barry a meeting with the director of HUD in Washington, D.C. This is a, a story that we heard at the funeral. The director of HUD was there. She's like, I got, a, I got a phone call one day from MIT. I don't get phone calls from MIT. I picked up the phone. It was Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky had given Barry a prepaid phone call so that Noam and Barry could talk about housing policy. And Noam wanted to get Barry an audience with HUD because Barry wanted to advocate for a position around using, um, using food service stamps to pay for temporary uh, storage of his possessions. He was an advocate 
for housing issues. He had Coke bottle glasses, he had an unkempt mob of shaggy brown hair, he had this great John the Baptist beard. Barry was every inch a prophet, like Zephaniah and Malachi and Haggai of old. He called this town to account. He carried around these yellow notepads with him in his, in his bulging plastic sacks, memorable lines, quotable quotes he had collected over the years from people that Barry admired, right? The other great prophets who had shaped his work. One of his quotes was, fear not the path of truth, nor the lack of people walking on it. That's Robert Kennedy. Safety guarded by violence is not really safety. That's Angela Davis. That some people can do so much to hurt other people is almost inconceivable. That's an original line from the Yellow Tablets. That's Barry Sutton. That some people can do so much to hurt others is almost inconceivable. He was completely uncompromising in his moral vision. As the, the pastor at First Unitarian said at his service on Thursday, in a world that is haunted by cynicism and complacency, Barry Sutton never lost his ability to be outraged. He was a moral compass for something like two dozen faith communities in this town. It took the combined efforts of two Buddhist communities, a Quaker meeting, a couple synagogues, and countless churches to lay him to rest on Thursday. The service lasted two hours and 45 minutes. This guy was a one-man ecumenical council. He was Portland's very own street prophet. And the prophets are a tricky business. We hear a little bit from them this morning. When Mary and I were talking in the sacristy, she said she had the Zephaniah reading, and I said, oh, Mary, give it to us. Like, <laughs> give it to us straight. Don't try to neaten this up. She's like, okay, well, I wasn't sure. I was like, no, 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 no. Thank you, Mary, for going for it. <laughs> prophets are tricky. Jesus knew this, right? A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. That's Jesus' line spoken after he got run out of town, out of his hometown on a rail because of his preaching. Prophets almost never managed to make a go of the respectable, middle-class, traditionally housed, neat and tidy nuclear family life. And that was true 3,000 years ago. That is true today. This morning, our prophet is Zephaniah, this guy that we only hear from once every three years. It's always the day of the Lord's stuff when we hear Zephaniah, which is actually kind of unfair to this guy. He had a lot more to say to the people of his town, to the people of Jerusalem, than just doom and gloom in the coming day of wrath, the day of judgment and distress and anguish and fear and devastation. There's a reason why Katie played the Dies Irae, right? This is the text where we get the Dies Irae from. This is where that text comes from, this angriest little bit of medieval Christian scare tactics you can hope to find this side of an ap apocalyptic fanfic. At first glance, this stuff is unmitigated fear-mongering. Right? You, may have, you may have experienced a little bit of that when Mary was up there reading, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. I mean, that just, whew, that just, uh, ouch. <laughs> it's an indictment of complacency, right? That seems to be where Zephaniah is going with this stuff. God says, I will punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs. That's actually, that's an odd turn of phrase. In Hebrew, it's kind of tricky to translate it literally. Another translation has, I will punish the ones who are thickening on their leaves. I'm not quite sure what that means. The ones thickening on their leaves. The ones who are stagnant in spirit. That's a, that's a more idiomatic way of rendering it. The ones whose hearts have, have curdled like cheese, congealed into something like rotten milk. The ones who have lost their ability to be moved by somebody else's heartbreak. Those are the ones God is calling to account. 
Those are the ones God is coming to judge on the great and mighty day of the Lord in Hebrew tradition. It's the complacent ones. It's the curdled ones, the congealed ones, the ones thickening on their lees. Woe betide you on that day, Zephaniah says. Woe betide you on that day, Barry Sutton would have echoed a couple thousand years later. In a world full of cynicism and complacency, the prophet is the one who stays outraged. This world is not as it was meant to be, and God is not going to let us get away with that for too much longer. He was talking to us. He was talking to Portland, sure, to America, perhaps, the enshrined separation between the haves and the have-nots that is such a beloved part of American life, the people who operate the food pantry and the people who eat of it, the ones who serve and the ones who are served. He was talking to us because he was brought up as a son of this parish, and he stood day by day outside in our food pantry line. Barry Sutton knew both sides of the compassion dynamic, right? He knew both sides of the outreach bargain. Somebody is in control of handing out the food, and somebody else needs the food. He had been one of the haves. He was a good Episcopalian, and he knew what it was to be a have-not, to be forever on the lookout for his next meal, and boy, did very sudden love to eat. Anywhere where there was food, he was there. And he committed his life. He invested his talents, if we want to use the phrase from Matthew's Gospel, the, the meager physical and financial resources he had access to, but the wealth of spiritual, intellectual, musical, emotional, theological, and political organizing talents that Barry's master had given him. He put those talents to use. He invested them in this city, in Portland streets, and the people who call these streets home. Like Zephaniah, Barry was our moral center. He called us to account. Woe betide those who rest complacently on their dregs. Their wealth will be plundered and their houses laid waste. If that was what the day of the Lord looked like, that was a day for which Barry Sutton longed and worked. And he was not alone. In the, in the black church tradition, as in many traditions where the, the emancipatory prophetic stuff in the Hebrew Bible has found an echo and a home, right? The day of the Lord, the, the diasire, the day of judgment, that is not a day to be feared. That is a day to be celebrated. They sang about it. They sang about it in their spiritual. We're going to hear one in a little bit. My Lord, what a morning. These Freed Northern Africans, finally out from underneath the imprimatur of white clergy people. They could sing their songs the way they knew they should be sung. My Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall. Thirty years ago, this morning, Trinity Episcopal Church, where Barry Sutton was baptized, became Trinity Episcopal Cathedral. It was November 19th, 1993. Many of you were here that day. I suspect Barry was here that day. I would love actually to see a picture of him. I wonder what he thought of that day. In the three decades that have passed since 1993, we've begun to explore this, this new vocation, this word that was handed to us, cathedral. What does that mean? What does that mean in Portland? And my sense is it has less to do with being some kind of exalted diocesan place that has less to do with the magnificence of a, of a fancy church building. It has more to do with the role that a cathedral can play in a city. You've heard me say this before, right? Trinity Cathedral belongs to the city of Portland. We don't just belong to the Episcopal Diocese of Western Oregon or to Christians in Oregon. We belong to those of many faiths and those of no faith. People like Barry Sutton, who held a membership card in about 15 different faith communities and had wisdom that he gleaned from every single one of them. 
And he embodies a vision for us, maybe a vision for Trinity's next 30 years on this particular street corner, in this particularly traumatized town, right? These particular streets. A vision for what it might mean to be a cathedral for Portland over the next three decades. It is not enough, I suspect Barry would have said to us, it is not enough to give people their daily bread, enough calories to get them through the day, with the rise of a fentanyl crisis, with an overwhelming nexus of homelessness and untreated mental health issues and drug use, the humanitarian crisis that is taking place on the front steps of this cathedral every single day is a crisis that is going to call each one of us to find a role to play in addressing it. We seek to, our vestry is, is working on these questions right now, right? How do we respond both with a concern for safety and also with a deepened compassion we will not rest complacently on our dregs. These are some intense questions. How can this community, responding to the, the scandal of these streets and the beauty of these streets, how do we continue to hold Barry's vision for what it means to be God's presence in the midst of a bleeding city? I think it means not just doing more stuff. Increasingly, as I pray about these questions, I think our response maybe has something to do more with, more with listening. Because for a long time, those of us on the service and compassion side of the table have gotten really good at sticking stuff in people's faces, which is important. And I think sometimes serves to distance or distract ourselves from the pain and the guilt and the sheer anguish of human suffering that is all around us. I think we're not always that good at sitting with our discomfort and our distaste and engaging the voices in our midst. At least, some of you are actually very good at this. I am not. I stepped over a couple prophets on my way into work this morning. A couple weeks ago, one of our prophets died of exposure out there at the bus stop on the corner as we were wrapping up our 8 o'clock service on a Sunday morning. Thankfully, somebody came and found Rags Reagan, one of our priests. She went out and gave him last rites. That could have been Barry, right? He was one of ours. He was a child of this parish. He was a member of this cathedral. He was part of God's great and glorious family. He was our prophet. And on this anniversary of our celebration, with as much as we have to be grateful for and to celebrate, I want to hear his voice. God's day is coming. God's day is dawning in all its terror, in its glorious majesty. It is coming to these streets, to this town, to, the, to this garbage-strewn, needle-haunted, boarded-up and benighted old burg that I love and that many of you love too. Downtown Portland, my God, Barry loved this town. And there are voices out there that are ready to give up on Portland. You've read them. Yeah, you don't need me up here to quote them, right? Downtown Portland is a horrible place. It's, you know, the drug problems are intense. Nobody should, nobody should go down there. Clean it up, clean it up, clean it up. I get that, right? Downtown is a hard place to be right now. But Barry loved this town. And I love this town. And Trinity Cathedral's not going anywhere. We are committed to this town, to these streets. Because these streets are beautiful. These streets are the streets that Barry Sutton called home. He loved these streets, and more to the point, he loved this church. 
this church that gave him his earliest upbringing in the faith. He went all kinds of places with that upbringing, but he kept coming back here. There was something about this place that kept drawing him back. And I want to know what that was. I want to know what Barry saw in us. Because I think if I can catch a glimpse of that, I have a sense of maybe who God is calling us to be more and more as we engage the situation in which we find ourselves, the literal location upon, in which we were planted. My sense is Barry would say to us this morning, there's more for you. There is so much more for you. I mean, my Lord, what a morning. My Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to fall.